Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about, has there ever been a time in your life, maybe there's a time in your life right now, where it's hard and you feel like you're trying to do everything you know to do uh, to obey the Lord, to be faithful, uh, to respond in a godly way, and yet it still seems to not be working, in a sense, almost like it's backfiring on you and getting worse. All right, I want you to think about that as we approach this story of David today. And it's some ground we've already covered, but the psalm is definitely going to be new. So... 1 Samuel chapter 24, let's start in verse 1. And when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. So remember... Uh, David is called to be king. He's called to support Saul. Saul is possessed by a demon, goes crazy, starts trying to kill David. David at first tries to run away and hide, and uh, he's trying to do his best. You know, I don't want to take matters into my own hand. I don't want to kill Saul. I'll just run away. I'll flee. First, he tries to hide with the Philistines. That doesn't work. He runs away. Uh, Now he's hiding in a cave. And it's like of all the caves in Israel, the one cave that Saul decides that he'll go to relieve himself in is the one he's hiding in. I mean, this seems... Very bad. It seems like nothing that David is doing is working. Verse 4, the men of David said to him, no, David's men, which really were a bunch of ruffians, they're going to interpret uh, providence in a different way. Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly, and it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and he did not allow them to rise up against Saul. But almost certainly they're like, Hey, if you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit not to kill him, that's fine. We don't feel convicted. Let us do it. And he has to use his words to influence them and push them back down. Verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hands in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you were lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you, as the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single uh, flea? Now, here's what I want us to think about this morning. David is in this uh, very uniquely trying situation. 
He's being falsely accused. I bet most of us have been in some situation where people are saying something about us that's not true. I mean, just that is hard enough in and of itself, right? To have our reputation kind of tarnished. But this is much worse. People are literally trying to kill him. I mean, he is literally on the run for his life, hiding, running. And then he has opportunities to fix the situation. And he has a lot of pressure to take matters into his own hands. Or people willing to take matters into their own hands. And so he's having to live between this rock and a hard place. And the question I want us to really try to wrestle with and think about this morning is this. What was it that enabled David to simultaneously be so humble, so submitted to Christ, so patient, such a man of, I will wait, I will not take matters into my own hand, but also such boldness, such strength, such confidence that he could turn around to his men who wanted to take matters into their own hands and he could calm them down. Does that make sense? Because usually in modern day life, okay, just think in your head. I'm not going to ask you to share with anybody. If I ask you, who's the humblest man you've ever met in your whole life? Okay, or humblest woman you've ever met in your whole life? Okay, just think for a second. Get an image. doesn't have to be your spouse, okay? You can be honest with yourself. Okay? Now I'm going to say, now, who is the most confident human being you've ever met in your life? And my guess is it's probably not the same individual. Right? Because typically we say, well, yeah, you know, she's really humble. uh, But sometimes that humility kind of spills into, you know, meekness, almost weakness. It's like they're too quiet when they ought to speak up. Well, you know, he's really confident. But sometimes that confidence kind of slips over into what you might call a jerk. To have the blend is really a supernatural gift. And what was it practically going on in David's life that enabled him to live such a life? Let's flip over to Psalm chapter 57 and try to drill down deeper into this reality. So Psalm chapter 57. Psalm 57, and let's look at the first three verses. And you can see by the title there, it's when David fled from Saul in the cave. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadows of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. So in a sense what he's saying, I mean this first point, if you want to uh, take notes, is just he's hiding in God. There's a sense in which he's like, I'm doing the best I know how, so I'm hiding in a cave. I'm using my mental resources, my body to hide. But practically speaking, I'm not really hoping in this cave. I'm hoping in you, God. You're, you're my refuge. You're my real hiding place. And this, this is such an important principle for us. <coughs> It is right and good to use all of the resources that we have to try to do what we think is best as long as that doesn't cross the line into sin. But we're not supposed to hope in our own efforts. Does that make sense? Okay. And listen, that's really hard to do. There was an old Puritan, I think his name was Samuel Bolton, but I may be quoting the wrong one. You know, a lot of those old Puritans, their names kind of sound the same. But let's just say it was Samuel Bolton. And he said, it's very hard to perform all righteousness and yet trust in none. You understand what he's saying there? I mean, as Christians, we're supposed to be radically serious about being holy in our practical day-to-day life. But then we're not supposed to put any trust or hope in our own holiness. But that's hard to do. In another sense, what we're looking at here with David is we're supposed to be very serious about using our mind, our body, our time, our energy, our money, whatever it is, to do the things in life that we think are most important. But in a sense, I'm not supposed to put 
any of my eggs of hope, so to speak, in that basket of expectation. All of my hope ought to be, hey, God, you bless the work of my hands. And a lot of times the way that God blesses the work of our hands is not the way that we had planned, right? I mean, think about David. When he went and hid in the cave, what he was hoping is, I'm going to hide in the cave and Saul will not find me in the cave. It's not the way it worked out. But actually, although it was very dangerous, it turned out being better. Because then David, in a sense, was able to prove his innocence. It was a very close call, and at least Saul backed off for a while. Um, Let's keep going here. Psalm 57, verse 2. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Man, I love that phrase. I mean, if you underline in your Bible, underline that phrase. If you don't underline in your Bible, throw away and get a new one that you underline in. I mean, that's a good phrase right there. I am not going to accomplish good things for myself. At the end of the day, only God is the one who can accomplish good things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. So there are going to be times in life where you feel like you need vindication, where you feel like you have been slandered, where you feel like someone has done something wrong to you and there's so much of you that wants to stand up and speak up or push back, but you're like, I really honestly can't think of a holy way to do it. Any way that I try to get involved in this arguing match is going to backfire. Sometimes that happens in marriage, sometimes with your own kids. And there's a right time and way to just say, you know what, God, will will you speak up for me? Will you vindicate me? I'm going to keep my mouth shut and let you do it. Um, I'm not... Uh, sitting at home reading Shakespeare and most of my free time, okay, but, I, but I'm somewhat familiar at least with a couple of the plays. Macbeth, there's a famous line in there where he said, if chance will have me king, then chance will crown me without my stir. You understand? You know, he had heard this prophecy, he was going to be king, and so at first Macbeth said, I'm not taking matters into my own hands to make myself king. Now, I think if I remember the play right, he didn't stay there. Eventually he said, ah, whatever, I will take matters into my own hands. Part of what makes David so amazing is he stayed in that attitude. I wasn't seeking to be king. God anointed me to be king. And so I'll be patient and I'll wait. And guys, in my own Christian life, and I think in a lot of the people that I talk to about their Christian life, and a lot of what I see in the Bible, maybe the hardest, most practical thing for us to trust God with is the timing. Is it not? I mean, I I have said before, I think what most of us want, and maybe I can't speak for most of us, but I can speak for myself, is I want a sitcom God. Do you understand what I mean by that? Right? The average sitcom, you take out the commercials, I think lasts 24 minutes. So within the first six minutes of the sitcom, there's some kind of little problem that comes up in the drama. And then maybe the next 12 minutes, it's suspense. What's going to happen? But by the last six minutes of the show, unless it's one of those to-be-continued episodes, everything's resolved. And a lot of times, that's how we really wish God would work in our life. Oh no, a problem popped up on Friday. Saturday is a very dramatic day. We pray really hard. But then Sunday, God answered all our prayers and everything's fine. But that doesn't take much faith to trust in a God like that, does it? I mean, what if you're somebody like Joseph, who when you're 17 years old, God says, essentially to you in a dream, hey, you're going to be ruler. You're going to rule over your whole family. And then really for the next 13 to 14 years, it's just downhill to a dungeon the faith that it took for Joseph to hang on to, no, God is good, I can wait, I can trust in Him. Okay, so this is not about passivity. Again, do everything you can in your strength to do what you think is best, but don't hope in your own efforts. Hope in God, hide in God. So 
Um, Hide in God, second point, hope in God. Look at verse 4. Psalm 57, verse 4. My soul is among lions. You ever feel that way? I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue as sharp sword. Now what do you think David is specifically talking about in verse 4? He's not literally being chased by a lion that wants to eat him. But what is he specifically referring to in verse 4? His men who are trying to convince him. Okay, that's right. It's, it's his men who are trying to use their words to persuade him to do something sinful. It's probably some of Saul's henchmen that are lying about him. He's saying, you know, we had the little you know, saying, sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me, which is total malarkey, right? I mean, words can rip our souls apart. They can be utterly destructive. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where maybe somebody's saying something to you and you're like, I would rather this person punch me in the face. That would be easier to take than the things they are saying about me and accusing me of. And David is saying, I feel like my soul is being ripped apart, God. I mean, with friends like these, who needs enemies? But I got friends who are telling me the wrong things to do, and I got enemies who hate me. I'm all alone, and I'm being destroyed here. So look at what he's going to do. Right? Essentially the middle of the psalm. Now, let me just pause here. Well, keep going. Verse 5. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Now, are there ever times where you're reading the Bible, and especially the psalms, that it just seems a little random? Right? I mean, just for a second, you're tempted to become a liberal Bible scholar. Right? You're like... Verse 5 doesn't seem like it follows verse 4 very well. But, but what's going on here is David is looking at the situation around him and he's overwhelmed. It's making him feel stressed. It's making him feel worried. He's not excited. And then it's like he pauses and he looks back up to God. Metaphorically, he gets his eyes off of himself. He gets his eyes back onto his king. And it's like joy and peace start to flood his heart again. So... Um, the movie Saving Private Ryan, I, most of the guys have probably seen it, maybe not all the women. So this illustration may be just for most of the men in the class. Okay, but there, there's a scene very early in the movie uh, in, in the battle when they're on the beach and, and everything is chaos and it's loud and people are dying and screaming. And there's two of the medics and they ha- kind of have all the wounded people laying by the seawall and they're trying to assess who do we need to give the most care to and they're kind of going down the line evaluating. But the younger medic keeps getting distracted And he kind of keeps looking back at all the chaos behind him and the explosions and the bullets. And at one point, the kind of commanding officer literally takes his hand and just bangs on the helmet of the younger medic. You know, it's like, focus! A lot of times what I feel like, this is what I feel like is a good time of prayer and meditation from me personally. is like I'm up in the morning, I'm reading my Bible, I'm journaling, I'm thinking about whatever hardship I'm going through. But literally what I'm doing, I'm banging myself on the helmet saying, Focus! Focus on the words on this page because this is more real. This is more powerful than whatever the circumstances are right now that I'm swimming in that I don't like. And I have to do that probably at least once a day at some level. Bang on my own helmet and say, focus on the God of glory sitting on a throne who's very calm, he's very in control, and he has great plans for all his people. Now, but I said, well, I want to know what those plans are. And he doesn't always tell us. And that's part of godliness is we have to wait and be patient. Look at verse 6. They have prepared a net for my steps. 
my soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. This is the thing that comes out over and over and over again in the Psalms. Evil people come up with evil means to hurt other people, but in the long run, they're going to get tripped up by their own evil schemes. It will backfire. There is justice on planet Earth. It just takes a long time to see it come to fruition sometimes. But if I can keep reminding, these people lying, these people slandering, um, if you can remind that, it will keep you out of so much trouble. I can remember a few years ago, uh, I had been kind of falsely accused of some stuff by another person that worked with Campus Outreach in another state. And he had kind of sent this angry, untrue email. And I didn't like it, right? I mean, my, my first response, you ever did, I mean, the conversation that you have in your own mind is like, aren't you glad people can't hear that? Right? Well, I'd like to say. And then sometimes you start to hammer out the response email. You ever been there? And by God's grace, I hit delete. And part of what helped me hit delete was this type of prayer. God, this guy's lying. He knows he's lying. You know he's lying. I know he's lying. I'm not going to defend myself. You vindicate me. You know, and, he, and God did. And that's not like I'm perfect and that guy was the devil. Okay? But we have got to be practical and say, God... I want to meditate on your word so much that your presence becomes real to me in a calming manner so that I can walk through whatever hardship with steadfastness and not panic. So, the third point. His heart is steadfast. Okay? Look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. He repeats it for emphasis. I mean, it's almost like he's shocked. God, when I get my eyes back on you, I feel peace. I feel calm. I feel confidence. I'm not worried anymore. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake my glory. In a sense, he's saying the best part of me, my soul, my inner man. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I'm going to wake up early tomorrow, God, and praise you for this. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Again, he starts in a really terrible place. And then by the end, there's just this spontaneous worship. He's just overflowing. And guys, this is the most normal pattern in all the Psalms. They start... Panicky, desperate, worried, problematic, and they end in this kind of overflowing, spontaneous joy. God is great, and He's going to conquer the whole universe one day. This is where we need to live. I mean, this ought to be our normal daily prayer time. Here's all the problems I have, God. But when I put them before you and I get my eyes off myself, I get my eyes back on you, I feel confidence again. Now, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Again, to try to understand how this practically influenced David on a day-to-day basis. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, and we'll pick up right where we left off in verse 15. Okay. 1 Samuel 24, verse 15. The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Okay. I mean, he's just saying, hey, King Saul... You're doing the wrong thing. I haven't done anything wrong. You shouldn't be trying to kill me. 
but no matter what happens, I am not going to sinfully take matters in my own hand. I'm looking to God, and I'm confident in the end God is going to vindicate me, and whatever kind of consequences you need, God will dish them out. This is the battle between do you live by fear and control? Listen, when we're in the flesh, when you're more influenced by sin, what's it going to lead to? Fear, and I don't mean like the godly fear, right? I mean the normal worldly sinful fear. I'm fearful. And then in light of that fear, how are you going to respond? With control. I have to micromanage the situation. I have to control it. Or you live by faith, and when you really feel a strong, confident faith in the Lord, what will it lead to? A confidence. A calm confidence. Um, The older your kids get, when kids are really little, they're so easy to control, right? And and sometimes you should control them. This is not a parenting class. But just the older your kids get, number one, the harder they are to control, right? And the less you can control them, even if you want to. You don't have enough time and money and technology to control them. I promise you. Because I've known people that have tried. Names will not be mentioned, all right? So part of what it takes to be a good godly parent just pause for that. I mean, is there anything else you care about more than your own kids doing right and walking with God on planet Earth? Not me. And yet, are there, is there anything else that more often reminds you you are out of control? <laughs> you have tried your best and it is not working. That doesn't mean you should quit. It means you should keep trying your best, but you don't hope in your own efforts. You say, oh, God, have mercy. If you don't just do a miracle in my kid's life, I've just wasted 22 years of parenting effort. I, uh, one of my uh, sons, I mainly tell stories about my sons because I have three of them, right? So they can always, you know, say, that wasn't me, right? <laughs> um, so one of my sons, I've just noticed. I couldn't tell, but it's just like, something seems off. I think something's going on. Doesn't, something seems off. And so I was going to get some time with him this weekend. Uh, Friday for me was a very long day, busy day. Didn't get to have any time alone with the Lord until kind of late in the day. Right before dinner, go for a walk. I'm trying to pray. You ever have days like this and it's like my, my mind is so busy and spinning with so many things. It's like I almost can't focus. Right? I'm just walking but trying to focus. And about the only thing I can focus on is, hey God, I know I'm getting time with this son tomorrow. I'm praying for a breakthrough conversation. I mean, that was about the best sentence that I could put together. Right? Just, I, that's what I want, Father. That's the only thing I can really focus on. Give me a breakthrough conversation with him tomorrow. So we go to spend time together. And again, it's not like I knew it, but I just, I, so I'm just kind of trying to very subtly ask questions. Again, because the older they get, if you come in hardcore, I'm worried about you. Something's going on and I need to micromanage your life. How's that go for you? <laughs> let me just let you know, it doesn't work well with teenage boys. Right? When they smell the fear and the manipulation and the control and the micromanaging, they're going to they're gonna shut down. So you have to, and listen, you can't fake it. Oh, I'm not worried. I'm fine. I mean, they know. <laughs> they can smell the fear seeping out of your pores. So you better be prayed up so that when you come, there can be a calm confidence. It's not a calm confidence that he's a great kid, right? Quit telling yourself that fairy tale. It's not a calm confidence that I'm a great parent. It's a calm confidence he's a great God. 
So I'm just kind of very casually asking questions, trying to, you know, kind of poke and prod a little bit. And he says, oh, yeah, that reminds me. I need to tell you about something and ask some advice. And then it starts rolling out, something I had no clue about. But he's being pretty honest and raw, and I really appreciate it. And he's like, what do you think I should do? And I know what he should do, okay? Partially because I've given half my life to discipling teenage boys, all right? If I'm an expert in anything, it's that. But at first, I don't answer. You know, you should pray about it. What do you think you should do? Back and forth, and he's suggesting very stupid ideas. And, uh, <laughs> trying to be patient. Listen, here's part of it, guys. Okay, Maybe this is turning into a parenting class. Half of what I'm doing is I'm sitting there talking to him and listening. In the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, God, give me wisdom. God, give me wisdom when to speak up and when to keep my mouth shut. And about the third time he said, Dad, what do you think I should do? I said, you really want my opinion? Yes, I said, here's what you should do. And he said, I know you're right. I know you're right. I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I know you're right. <laughs> we get in the car, talk more, we pray about it, we go home. And I'm like, you know, he's like, when do you think I should do it? I was like, why wait? Do it today. But, you know. And, uh, I went upstairs. I came downstairs a couple minutes looking for his mom. I said, hey, buddy, you know where your mom is? And he said something I couldn't really hear him. So I opened the door to his bedroom to, so I could hear him. And he didn't know I'd open the door. And he's down on his knees by the bed praying. And he, again, he doesn't know I'm in his room. And he's just like, hey, Dad, I'm going to do what you told me to do. I'm going to do it in just a couple of minutes. So, and I just kind of walked out. Praise the Lord. So... <laughs> A deep, consistent prayer and meditation life is our only hope in this world of living by faith and confidence rather than fear and control. There's a man in this church. He's an elder, godly man. Uh, He's older, and he worked for a fairly big corporation. And this just happened a couple years ago. Uh, He was let go. And he was convinced this is, I don't know the technical legal term, some of y'all could help me, but elder discrimination, essentially. And he went to a lawyer because he's like, I wasn't ready to retire. I was doing a great job. I think they got rid of me because they can hire a young guy, pay him half as much. And I, he went to a lawyer. The lawyer said, you got a great case. Guaranteed we can win this. But as he prayed about it, he just he felt like the Lord said, don't fight this battle. you got plenty of money. You want to spend more time with your grandkids anyway? So he went in to meet with the, he told the guys, hey, I want to meet with all the senior leadership. And he sat down with them. And he started out by saying, this was my plan, was to sue y'all. I met with a lawyer, I have a case, you know, and you can imagine their eyes are getting very big. He said, but I want to let you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to take the severance y'all have offered me. And here's the real, and he got to have this great opportunity to share the gospel with bosses. Now, am I saying that's the path everybody has to go? No, I'm not saying that, guys. Don't, don't mistake the application for the principle. The principle is... Live by faith and confidence, not by fear and control. So, let's keep going here in 1 Samuel. Verse 16. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, 
For you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Let me just pause for a second, guys. How do you think those words from Saul, his arch enemy, must have ministered to his soul? Talk about being vindicated when your own enemy is saying, you know what, you're right and I'm wrong. And I'm sorry. Verse 21. So now, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, two last things here. David is wise enough and shrewd enough like a serpent to know, even though Saul just had a moment of repentance here, I still don't trust him. I ain't moving back into the palace. Thank you for those kind words, Saul. We're going to keep living out here in the caves. Right? Shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove. But here's what I really want us to think about. King Saul says, I realize God's on your side. You're going to be the next king. And back then, and probably still today in some parts of the world, when one dynasty ends and the next dynasty comes in, what's the shrewd as a serpent leader of the next dynasty do? You kill all the heirs of the old dynasty to make sure that there's no competition. And so Saul's enough to realist to say, hey, I'm sorry, and just have mercy. Please don't kill my kids when God makes you king. And David says, I swear to you, I won't, I won't kill your kids. Now, what this ought to make us think about, especially on today, is the true son of David, who had every right to cut off the children of his enemy, Satan, who is who? All of us. John 8, 44. You're your father, the devil. And yet Romans 5 says, while we were still enemies, we weren't repenting, we weren't humble, we weren't begging mercy, we were still crying out, crucify him. He said, I'll go and die for him. I will be cut off in their place so that they can be adopted into the family of my father. So what does that mean in light of everything we said, guys? David's faith, David's confidence is really shocking because he didn't have much. He had the Exodus story. He had Samuel anointing him with oil. He had a couple little prophetic words. He didn't have much. We got this whole book, and mainly what we have is we have the resurrection of our Savior. That whatever suffering we're in the midst of, we can say, I don't know how it works. And a lot of times it does take 14 years before God makes his plans, right? But every once in a while... God does make his whole plan work in a weekend, doesn't he? I've oftentimes literally wondered if the Apostle John, right, he was the only guy that made it all the way to the cross of the twelve. I've wondered if like he really struggled with almost like suicidal depression on Friday afternoon after the Lord Jesus hung his head and said, it's finished. All of his hopes, all of his dreams, all the seeming prophecies confirmed and it's just over. 
the fear, right? They ran and hid, locked the door, the control, the desperation, the panic. But then literally, two days later, Sunday morning, he's risen. He's risen indeed. That ought to change every circumstance you're in with your kids, with your spouse, with your job, with whatever. I live by faith and confidence because I have a risen Savior, Lord Jesus. We're so unworthy, partially because we know these truths and we're still so sluggish to apply them and live them out. Thank you that you're a merciful Savior still. You're so patient and gentle, even with our sluggishness. But Lord, we do pray that you would take these old truths in our minds, in our hearts, and make them new, make them fresh, make them sing, so that we could live by strong faith, strong confidence, strong calmness and hope in your resurrection, in our coming resurrection soon. We pray all this in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.